morning for Sunday school, I'll be doing a bit of a missions presentation, and you'll be seeing some slides, hearing about some of the work that's being done on the various fields, and of course I look forward to worshiping with you tomorrow morning as well. But this evening, I thought I'd do something a little bit different. Um, this is this is a part of a of a um, of something that I've been working on actually for a lot of years. And it's not this thick, by the way. There's a lot of different papers here, just little top ones. And uh, so if you're, you're thinking, wow, how long are we going to be here? I know I'm only supposed to do a half an hour, and that's what I plan to do. Some of you have been here. It was a great time to join you in there, and particularly to observe the dancing that was going on. Didn't have the guts to get up there myself, but nevertheless, uh, enjoyed watching the, uh, the three couples that were bold to do that for the rest of us. I could see how many others wish they could be up there. So I, I was telling I was telling Dick, I don't know if if you've read any Reformation history, there's all kinds of things about about dancing. For instance, um, there were believe it or not, the church the church has you won't you it's not that you will fail to believe this. The church has always struggled with figuring out what it can say about certain things and what it can't say about certain things. So, for instance, at the time of the Reformation, the, um, the Reformed churches in Switzerland made rules about what dances could be danced at a wedding ceremony. And so the churches in some cantons, that would be the equivalent of their states, allowed certain kinds of dances, and other cantons said, you can't dance those dances. In fact, in certain cantons, if you were a member of a church here, you couldn't go and... You couldn't attend a wedding in a, in a canton where they allowed a dance if your canton didn't allow it. And the one dance that was always forbidden was the fling. So I have always been anxious to see what is it about the fling that some churches said was okay and other churches said, no, you're not allowed to dance that one. So whatever it was, I, I am sure that it was unbelievably innocent compared to anything that is being done nowadays. So it's uh, interesting to think those things through. What I would like to talk a little bit about this evening is um, I'm going to take some different things that you're absolutely familiar with, and I want to bring them together in a way that perhaps you haven't thought about them uh, being brought together. Uh, when we talk about missions, one of the things that we need to understand right off the bat is that it's a difficult topic because the word missionary isn't in the Bible. In fact, the word mission isn't in the Bible. Now, it's true. It's true that you will find it once in the NIV. You'll find it in the uh, NIV in um, Acts 12.25. Acts 12.25, they used the word in there, but if you were to look at the Greek, you would see that every other translation rendered the word service. Why the NIV chose to use the word mission, I don't know, but the word's really not there, okay? And then the one time you'll find it in the ESV is in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 12. And there, they supplied it because the English sentence is very hard to understand. In fact... If you have a King James Bible and you go home and you look at 2 Corinthians 11:12 and just look at it standing by itself, you're going to say to yourself, what on earth is this talking about? It's that obscure. Because what is happening there, Paul is talking about, um, he's talking about the, the something 
something that the false apostles are boasting about, but he doesn't tell us what the something is. And so how do you render that into English? Because you, wanna, you want people to understand. They're boasting about something, but we can't tell from, from the actual text what it is. So the ESV supplied the word mission. And so there we find the word mission, which isn't in the Greek, but they've supplied the word to describe the thing that the false apostles are boasting about. So, I, I just told you something very long to explain that one of the reasons it's difficult when you hear people using that word missionary or you hear them talking about mission and you wonder, what are they talking about? What's that mean? Because it seems like this person means one thing. And somebody else seems to mean something else. Because these are not biblical words, it's a little difficult, as I said, to explain or talk about the biblical basis for missions. Um, in the English language, the English word mission could be used to describe any group or person who is sent for some duty or purpose. Okay? That's just generally what it means. So, um, so it, it can also be described, it can also be used to speak about the goal that a person or a group has. For instance, in English, we speak about military missions. We speak about scientific missions. We also um, describe it in terms of a person, that we would say that somebody is on a mission. In other words, they're going to find the salt that is in the kitchen, and they're searching everywhere to find where it is located at. They act like they're on a mission because they have this goal. And so we use this word to speak about um, those kinds, those specific goals or objects of, that somebody might be you know, seeking to do. If we understand the word mission in that general sense of describing a purpose in life, then we may also say that we know what all of mankind's mission is supposed to be in this world. We recite it whenever we ask the question, what is man's chief end? And we give the answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That is to be the mission of mankind. That's His chief goal. The object of His existence. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And so we can talk about mankind's, what mankind's mission is supposed to be. However, let's focus more narrowly on the church's mission. And when I speak about the church in its institutional sense, or let's speak about the individual believer as well, the mission of the individual believer, the world, mankind does not understand, does not know what its mission is supposed to be, but we do know what our mission is supposed to be. In other words, we make this, let's make this personal. If mankind's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, then as those who know the true God, and therefore, you know what your purpose is. What is your mission? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. You can say, my mission is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. 
If we focus on the first part of that purpose, because I'll let you pastor talk about enjoying God forever, but let's talk about the glorifying God part. If we focus on the first part of our purpose, that is to glorify God, we must begin by asking ourselves how it is that we glorify God. How do we glorify God? We discover, what it, when we ask ourselves that question, we discover what it means to glorify God by listening to Jesus' words, particularly in two passages that speak of Jesus glorifying the Father. One passage is found in John 15, verses 8 through 14. It goes like this. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. So there's this intimate relationship, as we're going to see, between glorifying God and obeying his commandments. A second passage is found in the words that he prays, that Jesus prays to the Father in his prayer in John 17, 4. There Jesus says these words, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now this isn't the way that we usually think about glory, is it? In fact, if we were to open to the first chapter of John and we would read about Jesus, for instance, in his first truly, truly, saying that uh, truly, truly, you will see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man, you would realize that um, as John has earlier described in the opening verses of that chapter, when he talks about beholding the glory of God, it talk, we, we get to think about this, this heavenly thing, don't we? We think about this heavenly thing. And John talks about having beheld the glory of God. And so what do we usually think of when we think? What passage do you think, or what incident do we usually think of when we think about beholding the glory of God? What is it? Please. Mount of Transfiguration. So my wife's going to speak up if she hears you silent. So it, she would really prefer if you would answer the questions, if you can. So we usually think about the Mount of Transfiguration. But if that's what the Gospel of John chapter 1 is talking about, the problem is, only three people that were there, right? Only three disciples went up on the mountain with Jesus. Well, when we turn to John chapter 2, we begin to realize that John, the evangelist who writes the gospel of John, is not talking, when he talks about beholding the glory of the only begotten Son, he is not talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. We realize it after we read the whole gospel because John, who was actually one of the three to be on the Mount of Transfiguration, never mentions the Mount of Transfiguration in his gospel. And as a matter of fact, when we get to John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and the changing of the water into wine, do you know what verse 11 says? They saw his glory and believed. Now, what glory did they see? 
They saw the miracle. And in that miracle, they beheld his glory. There were others there who saw the exact same thing. Verse 9 tells us the servants knew where the wine had come from, but we never find about, we never hear about them believing. So there is something about what a regenerate person sees that an unregenerate doesn't see. And that's what I want us to understand. You know, the unregenerate person does not know what his purpose is in this world. But as those who have been born again, as those who have been raised from the dead by Jesus Christ, you do know what your purpose in this world is. My chief goal is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And how do I glorify God? Well, Jesus tells us in the passages I read in John 15 and 17, we glorify God by obeying His commandments. Glorifying God is more than attending a worship service. It is that. But it's much more than that. Note how closely glorifying God, as I've already said, and keeping his commandments are connected in both of those John passages I read earlier. Jesus glorified the Father by doing the work that the Father gave him to do. I glorified you by doing the things you gave me to do. His obedience was was bringing glory to the Father. The miracles that Jesus did manifested that glory because he was doing the will of the Father. Jesus glorified the Father by doing the work that the Father gave him to do, which included speaking the words that the Father gave him to speak, We glorify the Father by bearing much fruit and obeying Christ's commandments. The fact that Jesus was sent into this world by the Father to do the Father's will is made absolutely evident by Jesus' many declarations that the Father sent him to do the Father's will. He was to speak the Father's words and to do those things that the Father gave him to do. So I'm just going to mention a couple of examples. In John chapter 5, verse 30, Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And in John 6, 38, Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John seven sixteen, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. John 8.42, Jesus said to them, if, I, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. John 12.49, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. And we could go on and we could look at a lot of other passages that say the exact same thing. And it's in light, therefore, of this understanding of Jesus' work that he he came to do the Father's will. He came to speak the words that the Father gave him to speak. He came to do the things that the Father sent him to do. And it's in light of this understanding of Jesus' work that we're able to also understand a, uh, a lot of other things in Scripture. I, I'm going to skip some of this. But in other words, it, may, it begins to make sense. I glorified you on earth by doing all that you commanded me to do. That's how he glorified God. 
So glorifying God is more than being at a worship service. It's doing the things that we've been sent to do. In Matthew chapter 15, 24, when speaking to a Gentile mother who asked him to heal her daughter, he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. He saw the Father's will for himself as not only a, a command of what he should do, but as a limitation that he wasn't to go beyond. And in John 6, 38 through 40, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. From these passages, then, we learn what it means for us to glorify God. We glorify God by doing what Jesus commanded us to do. And by speaking the word that Jesus has given us to speak. This is our purpose. This is our chief end. And if it is man's chief end, as I said, it is particularly the purpose and chief end of the church and of us. It's our mission. We see this in the Great Commission, and this is where I want to bring two things together. You know, you're familiar with the Great Commission, and you're familiar with this idea of I glorify God by doing His will. I glorify God by doing what He's commanded me to do, by saying the things He's commanded me to say, that He sent me to say. But I now want you to think of that in connection with the Great Commission. When the church makes disciples of all nations, is it part of its duty to teach those disciples how to glorify God? Listen to Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But the part that we particularly leave out, I think, is the last part of what Jesus says. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let me repeat the part again. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. When he says teaching them to observe, teaching them to do, to obey all that I have commanded you. The church teaches the disciples to observe all that Jesus has commanded. And when the disciples go do all that Jesus has commanded, those disciples are glorifying God. Because Jesus himself defines glorifying God in terms of doing the things that the Father had commanded him. And if he is doing, is there any difference between what the Father commanded Jesus and what Jesus commands us? No, they're the same thing. So when we obey, then we're glorifying God. And by teaching others to observe all that Christ has commanded, we are teaching them how to glorify God. Just as Jesus glorified the Father by doing all that the Father gave him to do, we glorify Jesus by doing all that Jesus has commanded us to do. 
Making disciples is part of what Jesus commanded his church to do. And part of our work in glorifying Jesus is making disciples who will also glorify Jesus as they learn and obey all that he has commanded. And how do we know what he's commanded? It's, it's the scripture of the Old and New Testaments, isn't it? The mission of the church and our mission is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. We glorify God by doing all that Jesus commanded us to do, including teaching others all that Jesus commanded, so that they also will do all that Jesus commanded us to do. I have stressed this perspective because anything less leads us to be short-sighted in our understanding of missions. Missions isn't just a matter of seeing that others hear the gospel as we go into the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Certainly it starts there. But those who believe are baptized, those who are believe, who believe and are baptized must also be taught. They must be taught to do all that Jesus has commanded them to do. We glorify God by being faithful disciples. The church glorifies God when it faithfully carries out Christ's commands. The church faithfully glorifies God when it teaches Christ's disciples to do all that Jesus has commanded. In John 17, Jesus prays this in part. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world. So I have sent them into the world. You thought you were born here, didn't you? But you were not born again here. You have been sent from heaven into this world. And that doesn't mean that you have to leave here and live somewhere else. Wherever you are, you have been sent to that place by Christ. If we understand that we have been sent into the world to do Jesus' will, just as Jesus was sent into the world to do the Father's will, then we will understand that missions is the vehicle by which God calls and gathers disciples who will glorify Him. Missions is far more than one of the, uh, one of the assignments given to the church, like an item on a checklist. <coughs> Worship service. Check. Sunday school. Check. Diaconal assistance, check. Neighborhood outreach, check. Missions, check. That's how we usually think of it. What are we going to put in the budget for missions? What are we going to do to focus ourselves on missions? We are always in the process. It's, it's not that at all. It, missions is way bigger than that. It's everything we do in this world as we do all that Christ has commanded us to do. We are always in the process of being made into better disciples and always in the process of helping to make disciples. Disciples are made and grow in understanding through their worship, through biblical instruction, through observation of godly character, and as the Holy Spirit sanctifies them to do and to speak what Jesus has commanded. Therefore, we are engaged in missions every day, both as its object and as part of the disciple-making process. Mothers and fathers engage in missions when they are making disciples through the instruction and example that they set 
before their children. Those children are being made into missionaries. They're making disciples. Believers, believing co-workers, engage in missions and disciple-making, not only as they may have occasion to speak of Christ, but also as they set a godly example to be followed by other disciples. Now, you may wonder, this sounds interesting, but where does this come from? Well, it's interesting that, you know, when Dick and I were in seminary, we had to read a book. Do you remember reading uh, Introduction to a Science of Missions by Bobbing? Nobody reads that book anymore. But I went back and read that. And it's astounding, the stuff that's in it. Here's a quote. This is on page 68. The work of missions is too broad and too all-inclusive to be limited to the actions of the church in its institutional form. Missionary activity takes place in life in its entirety, including both the organized and the unorganized activity of believers. The book was written in 1960. So everything I've just said, that comes out, you can see how it's saying this. I hope you see it's saying the same thing. Understanding that Jesus was sent by the Father should help us give us perspective in his sending of us. In John 17, Jesus prayed in part, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. We have been sent by Jesus. You can say that to yourself. I have been sent by Jesus. I am on a mission from Jesus to glorify God by doing all that Jesus has commanded us to do. By observing His commands. We are not from here, just as Jesus was not from here. We must keep in mind that we are not of the world. He was from heaven, and now we are from heaven. He has sent us from heaven into this world. Therefore, in having a Christian worldview of missions, we must begin with the notion that we are aliens who have been sent by Jesus into this world. We're not from here. When we were regenerated, we were no longer from here. We died to this world. And we're made alive to Christ. We may, by God's, the grace of God, live and be citizens of a nation where we can enjoy everyday comfort and safety, but we are here only because Jesus Christ has sent us to be here. He was not of this world, and if we are His, neither are we. 
He was sent from the glory of heaven to live in this world and share in all the experiences of its impoverishments from sin. Likewise, you have been sent into a world from the glory of heaven to live in this world and share in all of its impoverishment that is the result of sin. To go from one place to another in the world or even to stay in your own neighborhood in which you were physically born to do missions is simply a matter of going from one part of the world of which you are not a citizen to another part of the world of which you are not a citizen. You're not from here. People don't get sent from the United States to Uganda. Christ has sent them first to the United States and then Christ sends them to the Uganda from heaven. Therefore, when we were more particular, when we more particularly speak about our evangelism or church planting, we're not talking about an extra activity. It isn't something we add to what we were already doing. It's part of the purpose or chief end of the church. Evangelism and and church planting are part of the very purpose for which Jesus has sent us into the world. It's for this reason that some have recognized that the foundations for missions... No, I'm not going to talk about that part. I like to cut out stuff. I know you want to go home tonight, but at any rate. Um, so I will skip past those things. And... Pretty good. They'll be... Anyway. Um, So, but I, I just want to, I want to come to, to, to a couple last points here. The separation between faith and unbelief that existed before the flood would continue to exist after the flood. A separation between unbelief and a faith that is counted as righteousness. A faith that manifests itself through the obedience to God's commands. A faith which glorifies God. It is a faith that can only be understood in its relationship to Jesus. God is blessing men whose hearts have evil intentions. It, you know, this is all part of something I was talking about earlier. It's inter- but um, in missions, therefore, the fruitfulness and multiplication and filling of the earth that we find that was commanded of Adam and then commanded of Noah after the flood is, as John 1, 12-13 says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The foundation of missions is nothing less than the work that God does to save the people whom he has chosen, and who are born of God, and saved through Jesus Christ. Missions is the work of God to bring glory to himself through the instrument of redeemed men and women who know and do all that Christ has commanded. Wow. In another passage in Bobbing's book, An Introduction to the Science of Missions, he writes this. Missions is the great work of Jesus Christ, through which, after his completed and work as mediator, he draws all people to his salvation 
and makes them to partake of the gifts which he has obtained for them. And that's the end of that quote. Missions is the work of Jesus. That's the point I want to make. You are missionaries of Jesus Christ. Every single person in here who's been raised from the dead by Jesus Christ, who's been given a new life in him, you are a missionary. You have been sent from heaven to live in this world. You were sent from heaven to be raised in the home of your parents or wherever. You were sent into this world to do the work that you're doing now. And there you are to obey all that Christ has commanded you. And as you obey, as you manifest obedience to Christ's commands in your life, you are bringing glory to God. Setting an example to others of how they should glorify God by obeying all that Christ has commanded. Setting an example to your children of how they should glorify God by obeying all that Christ has commanded. Setting an example to unbelieving family members of what they should be doing, even though they won't appreciate it, even though they won't see the glory. You are manifesting the glory of God. A glory that they won't see. But a glory that God does see and receive and accepts through Jesus Christ. Missions is the work of Jesus. Jesus works through us to glorify God by sanctifying us to bring us to understand and make us do, by the work of His Spirit, all that He has commanded. Jesus then uses us to glorify God by calling all men and women everywhere to glorify God as they are taught to obey all that He has commanded. His Spirit effectually calls men and women through the words and the behavior of His people. His people are His missionaries. You are his missionaries. His spirit converts those whom he has drawn through the words and behavior of his missionaries. His spirit sanctifies those who have been regenerated to do all that he commands through his word and behavior of his missionaries. You. You know, recently... I sat in a meeting where different organizations were talking about the people who they are sending out right now as missionaries to other places in the world. One organization has close to a thousand missionaries. And they've done some research to find out about those missionaries, to look into their background. 50% of them come from broken homes. 50% of them have been believers for fewer than three years. I was pretty much staggered when I saw that. Staggered. So, you're sending a person to be a missionary in another part of the world where they are working with people who have been believers let's say, for 12, 15, 20 years of their lives who read the Bible, in some cases are already pastors, and these people who have been believers for fewer than three years of their life, who themselves grew up in a broken home and therefore are hard-pressed to imitate or set an example to others of what a good Christian home would look like, these are the missionaries that this organization is sending out, 50%. I almost would like to ask for hands. How many of you, but I want you to raise your hand in your head. 
Okay? I'm asking you to raise your hand in your head. I've been a believer for more than eight years of my life. Raise your hand in your head. Don't have to put your hand up. I have read the Bible several times, at least several times in my life, from cover to cover. I want you to raise your hand in your head. I, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, He has put me through trials and He has brought me out the other side, working by the power of His sanctifying Spirit through His Word to change me. And I have seen that work in my life. Raise your hand in your head. So, you are a person who has been worked in by the Spirit, a person who has fed on the Word of God, a person who has been a believer for a number of years in your life. And I want you to raise your hand. I want you to say to yourself right now, I am a missionary. I am a missionary. Every believer in here is a missionary. It doesn't matter whether that eight years. It doesn't matter that time of reading the Bible. And it doesn't matter about what kind of faith, what kind of trials you've experienced so far. Everybody in here is a missionary. But, you know, if I meet these other qualifications he's talking about, I should really be one of those people that Christ sends someplace else. Right? I've been living pretty comfortably. Pretty comfortably. And I've read the Bible how many times? I've been a believer for how many years? The Lord has taken me through trials and I have seen His victory in my life. I see that I love people now that I didn't love before, that I would have never loved when I grew up. I've seen that I have gone from being a person who had a temper to a person who by the grace of God and Jesus Christ is able to speak a kind word when I otherwise in the past would have been angry. You know, I really, I really should be one of those people who goes someplace else. Not somebody who's only been a believer for, you know, let them grow for a while. Praise God for their zeal. Praise God for their desire. But you know what? I should have that zeal in me. I should have that zeal in me rather than just want to sit and relax and coast. But if you're not going to be one of those people who goes over to another country, I want you to be one of those people who's going to pray for the people who do go to other countries to be missionaries. We desperately need two missionaries in Uganda who are ministers of the word. We desperately need another person in Haiti. We desperately need another person in Uruguay. There are believers all over the world. You know, I've gone to places and it's not because there aren't believers who are strong there. For instance, let me tell you, one time Mike McCabe, he asked me to come over to China and give lectures. And you know what he wanted me to give lectures on? He wanted me to talk about church discipline. In other words, describing real cases that had taken place in the church, that had taken place in presbyteries, that had gone all the way to General Assembly. Now, why would he want me to explain that? There were plenty of people in this room that had been Christians for a lot of years. There were plenty of people in this room that had read the Bible dozens of times, but you know what they didn't have? They didn't have senior pastors. Because in the days of mouth, that whole generation of pastors were thrown into prisons, and they died. So they didn't have mentors. 
And as anybody in here who knows anything about church discipline, you know that there's nothing that's black and white. There's a lot of gray. There's a lot of practical things that have to go on. And there's a lot of love that has to be involved in that. So what they, they didn't need, they didn't need stuff that they could read in books. What they needed was somebody to talk them through that mentoring. And you know, if you've been a believer for a lot of years, if you're a person who has gone yourself through trials, if you've read the Bible over and over again, then there, if it's, even if it's not in the area of pastoral ministry, there are other areas of need. You know, you read about it in some of the letters that come out of Uganda, like, you know, Tina de Young, or what the, the things that are being done by Angela Bosco or by others over there. And so there are lots of things that can be done, but even if you're not going to be that person who is, other than being sent here to whatever place you live in New Jersey, even if you're not going to be that person who goes, who, who Christ has not only sent here, but sends to another country, please pray that the Lord would raise up more people that would be sent throughout the world. Mature people. People who've read the Bible many times. People of the Lord who's he's worked in their lives. That they would be raised up. And pray for those who are already there. Pray for more ministers of the Word to be raised up and go preach the gospel in other countries. We need another man to work alongside Charles Jackson. I, you know, I'll tell you today, you're going to see pictures tomorrow. Charles and Connie, they want to be back there, but physically, they're not there. They're, they're just a real struggle for them. They've had so many back, you know, he's got back problems. He had to have this, these, uh, these vertebrae free, you know, um, fused in his neck. And they just don't know how much more is in them for that part. It's hard. Uh, we need another family up with the Folkerts. You know what James just went through? That, which doesn't happen. You know, I know it's not a big selling point when you talk about a missionary being attacked. But I want you to know it, 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 it rarely happens. But it does happen. It does happen. Yes, when I was in Uganda, there were 11 poisonous snakes on, in one week that were on the compound. But I want to tell you that in 22 years, not one single person has ever been bit associated with our mission. That doesn't mean that tomorrow somebody's not going to be bit. But nobody has been bit so far. Cobras, puff adders, black and green mambas, yes. I'll show you a photo of a green mamba tomorrow. If that's promising to you, please be in Sunday school. But, you know, and I know those aren't selling points. But you know what? It's not safe to be here either. Is it? Is it? How about the hurricanes? So, it's, but it's not about being here. It's not about being there. It's about the fact that you have been sent. Just as Jesus was sent to die for your sins, to live a righteous life for you, and die on the cross for you, he has sent you. The one to whom you owe everything. Body, soul. He has sent you. You are not only, you are his disciples, you are his missionary. To glorify God by doing all that Christ has commanded you to do. And when you make disciples, you're teaching them. You're setting an example to them. To do all that Christ has commanded you to do. It's just part of it. Here in Uganda, who cares? Because as those who have been sent by Christ, 
You're, of course, willing to go wherever he wants you to go, aren't you? You're, of course, willing to do whatever he wants you to do, aren't you? He owns you, body and soul. You belong to him, body and soul. And you want to serve him, body and soul. So whether it's talking to your neighbor or talking to that unbelieving relative, getting those opportunities, yes. Sending a, an example before them, yes. And you're going to have plenty of opportunity to do that over Thanksgiving, Christmas, and, and New Year. But praying, praying for them, that God raise them from the dead, praying for yourself that you would be faithful to do all that Christ has commanded you. Praying that God would raise up and send more missionaries and be with our missionaries who are on the field. Thank you for this evening. We're closing now.